Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the IT News Podcast. Our guest this week is Air Wallox's Head of Information Security and IT, Elliot Cahoon. Air Wallox has spent the past two years overhauling its application landscape and upgrading end-user compute. Now, there were a few reasons to do this. However, one of them is that Cahoon believes the state of internal systems influences the quality of what gets built from a customer-facing perspective. The idea is to set a high internal bar, which then gets reflected in the products. So it's a different kind of strategic discussion this week on the podcast, but one we hope you'll enjoy. At Airwallets, I wear two hats. So I look after security for Airwallets, and this is both across our corporate environment and our product and all of our customers' use. But I also look after our internal tools. And this is your more traditional corporate IT environment. So Slack, Okta, Jam, all of our device management, authentication, and so on. I'm originally a software engineer as well. So I kind of fell into security and IT. It's been pretty humbling to see how complex and sophisticated these domains are. They're actually really tough to work in. And I think the benefits of actually looking after both of these domains is that we can have consistent goals across both of these departments. So we can have a really strong focus on transparency and be really focused on the product that we're building within each of them. Both of these domains, both of these teams really want to build great products internally and use us to inspire our employees and to build really great products for our customers referencing what we do internally. I think the last thing that's quite nice is that approaching IT and InfoSec is more of an engineering problem and kind of more of a product-focused way allows us to change the framing of IT and InfoSec from something that is typically like an internal function and just a service that you provide to something that's more SME-focused where we have these experts internally they know what really good internal tools looks like. And we can use those as reference points for the product that we're actually building for our customers. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because you mentioned there that you've both sort of internal focused and also contributing to the engineering effort that goes in behind the product and the service itself. So do you want to explain a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, and I think this is key to the strategy that we have across both of these teams. One of my friends has this wonderful saying, which is that the quality of your internal tools determines the quality of your external tools. I think that's one of those things that's very true, and it's often not intuitive when you join a company. And to use an example of how the internal bar for quality of tools influences what you're building for your customers, we can use something like logging into services internally. Let's say that we go out and we buy Okta, we set it up, we don't spend a lot of time trying to fine tune it and get our auth policies into a really great place. And logging into Okta just becomes a bit of a pain for all of your employees. They get asked for a username, password, 2FA all of the time. It's very inconsistent when they see those login windows. The error messages that are presented to them when they fail to log into something aren't transparent. They don't know if it's because they're not on a VPN or if their fact is wrong or whatever. And this is something that is impacting every employee in your organization every day. And over time, they subconsciously start to use your internal tools as the bar for quality because that's just what they're using. And then they start to hold themselves to that bar for when they actually start to build their product. And so they say, great, we should at least make it as good as what we have internally. So instead of thinking of it as just let's get that function implemented so that we have really good auth policies and we have a good sense of trust in the tools that we have and the security controls that are in place, instead we start to think about it as how can we make this internal auth process really great? What if we start to share information about what our auth policies are with our employees and we do deep dives into how they work and we talk about the different factors that we incorporate, how we do device checking, we do a bunch of like risk-based analysis when those logins occur, we talk about the different strengths and weaknesses of the approach that we've taken, and we explain how we've 
put all of this time and effort into like fine tuning our auth policies to build a really great user experience. That means that login windows pop up relatively infrequently. The error messages are really clear about what is actually going wrong without degrading our security controls. And we're just aiming to build a really high quality product internally. And what you find is that your product managers, your engineers, the people that are using your tools, but also building the tools of the customers start to hold themselves to a higher bar. They have this internal reference, which is a lot better than what they've used historically. And so you basically see an improvement in the quality of the product that you build externally as a result. On the flip side of that, is the internal system a lot better for that? Because I can imagine in a lot of engineering organizations or ones that are producing a customer facing product, that most of the effort would go into the customer facing aspect and perhaps the internal stuff might lag. So you're talking about a different kind of scenario where the internal is directly influencing the output to the customer. That's right. The way that we operate is that we actually have our IT and InfoSec teams sit under our broader engineering division. And so we have updates from IT and from InfoSec being provided to the rest of engineering. It's treated kind of like its own product team inside of our wallets. So we hold ourselves to a very high bar internally. We share the work that we're doing. They can see what our roadmap are. They can understand how we prioritize. And they can start to reference us when they start to build new features. So as an example, we've been working on some authentication features internally for our product for our customers. And we've had the product manager actually chatting with us every day for the past two weeks saying, hey, this is what we're building. Can you review the product design document we've put together? Can you help review that RFC? What do you think about these different factors that we could potentially support? And so we're looking really internally to see what the best thing is that we can possibly provide to our customers. How do you split that kind of responsibility? Because you've got a very blurred structure there in terms of the product engineering and the internal IT. They're kind of one and the same function almost. Yeah, and the product and engineering team has different sets of leadership, I think, to our IT and InfoSec team. We build our IT and our InfoSec roadmaps based on what the business is doing as well. So as an example, if we as a business are really investing in improving authentication controls, pretty simple example, that's where we start to dig in and try and improve the quality of the tools that we're using internally for that space. If we are trying to improve some of the web applications that we're serving to our customers, we might spend more time from an IT perspective on doing market research, understanding what the best alternatives are in the market at the moment, and figuring out how we can build the best environment internally that kind of maps to what we're building for our customers. Do you want to just give us a sense of Airwallex's environment itself and say sort of how many users you're supporting, what kind of systems or platforms you're supporting or creating as part of the IT environment? So we have around about 1,300 employees globally. We have about a 50-50 split between our Mac and our Windows environment. We're using basically as modern tooling as possible throughout our IT environment as well. About two years ago, we were pretty unhappy with the tools that we had in the business. So we basically threw everything away and started rebuilding. We ended up going down the path of buying and implementing Okta. We use Jamf and Intune for our device management. Slack, Google Workspace, and Atlassian for a lot of our collaboration tools, using Zoom for voice communication. We're trying to make sure that all of those are nicely integrated. On our endpoints, a pretty interesting case study, which I think shows how we actually operate as a business. About a year ago, we were finding that a lot of our engineers were complaining that when they had their dev environments running on their local machines, everything was running incredibly slowly. We didn't have a lot of data to go on to actually understand why that was the case. And I think the normal IT reactionary response would be to either just go and buy devices that have slightly more memory. So let's go and order 32 gig memory machines for our Macs instead of our 16 gig ones. 
But we wanted to actually more deeply understand the problem. And so we ended up deploying a small set of tooling that allowed us to do some pretty trivial device performance monitoring. So this was just looking at like CPU usage, memory usage, disk usage, device age, all of that. We built a bit of a pipeline around that. And we started having a look at what the performance metrics were for our engineers. And what we found is that when we looked at the data, buying 32 gig machines probably actually wasn't going to be sufficient. And instead, it was worthwhile for us to pay the extra five or $600 or whatever it was to actually go for 64 gig machines. And we had this data that could show what the productivity impact was of having machines that just didn't have enough memory versus actually spending the extra $600 to increase that. It was quite nice being able to have that conversation with our finance team as well. They're obviously a stakeholder. We need to spend more money. But we're able to actually prove with data that this was a worthwhile investment for the company. On the tooling that the developers are using, the engineers are using, how much of that is choice for them? Uh, their standardized IDEs and other tooling that is used within the organization? I think that we have rough standards, I would say. We have pretty flexible policies. We allow developers to largely self-service what tools they want, so long as it's obviously appropriately licensed and meets our security requirements. And our goal is very much to provide an environment where people can go and figure out what are the best tools that I can use to effectively do my job. If you're an engineer, we don't want to say, okay, great, you're locked into using VS Code only, or you're locked into using Nocode++ or Sublime, or you have to use IntelliJ, or you're not allowed to use PyCharm or whatever. Instead, we want to make sure that people are productive and they feel that they're invested in. And it's a very collaborative environment in that sense. We don't go out of our way to block certain IDEs or force people to use other IDEs. Instead, it's very much what is the best tool for you to use your job, and then we try and figure out how to achieve that outcome. We've talked about the end-user compute side, the endpoint side, and we've talked about some of the security architecture. Do you want to talk a little bit about more of the IT architecture, so maybe the infrastructure layer, but also, I guess, maybe some of the key enterprise systems that would be in use in the organization? The way that we've structured our corporate IT environment is that we wanted to have the most modern tools possible that would allow us to constantly be on the cutting edge of the security controls and the features that we can provide our employees. We ended up going with Okta when we replaced our identity provider a few years ago because we felt that their integrations with other tools and markets was actually in a really good place. It had like a pretty nice little automation engine built in, but we also really loved their APIs and that was a really big selling point for us. When we look at procuring new products or replacing core parts of our corporate IT infrastructure, we always look to see whether or not it's a tool that we are able to build on rather than just trusting whatever that tool is today. We do this across the board. So Slack is a pretty good example of this. Like the Slack app APIs are pretty good. We have a lot of apps built internally to help automate away a lot of the manual processes we have. But to give an example of how we select some infrastructure, we found that when we were offboarding our employees, when they finished up with us, we we're spending a lot of time just doing the typical manual tasks of going into different systems, rooting their accounts, ensuring that their access was disabled. We were going to Okta, we could deactivate their profile and they wouldn't be able to log into anything. But the fact that we're doing any kind of manual work in the first place was a little bit of an issue that we wanted to address. And so we took this challenge of, are we able to completely automate our offboarding process in a way that actually matches how we would build this if we were building like a product for our customers? And so we leveraged the fact that we have really good APIs for a lot of the infrastructure and the tooling that we have internally, built a series of cloud functions, and built this event-driven architecture that allows us to basically subscribe to any employee changes from our HR systems and automatically trigger a series of cloud functions so that will deactivate the employee from all of the different tools that we have internally. 
And because we've been replicating the kind of patterns that you would typically use in your product environment, it means that we get a lot of those benefits as well. And so because we're using an event-driven architecture, you get the nice-to-haves of being able to just create another pod function that subscribes to those events, consumes them. You can have the same triggers. You also get replay pretty cheaply. If one of the jobs fails, it's not going to impact the other jobs. It saved us money as well because we weren't just running some massive script on a VM and GCP somewhere anymore. And it's also a very cool thing that we can talk about internally about how we're using these software engineering designs on our own internal corporate IT infrastructure. We started the conversation just before we started recording. We started talking a little bit about strategy, so it might be useful to go down the path of strategy. And I don't know how you want to split this, whether there's separate IT strategy and a separate infosec strategy or whether there's a lot of linkages between them. I don't know how you'd like to approach that kind of conversation. So our IT and InfoSec teams, because they're effectively one broader team, they just kind of handle slightly different areas of our corporate IT environment and product environment. We have a pretty consistent set of strategies across both. The thing that's really nice about having IT and InfoSec effectively under one big umbrella is that you have an InfoSec team that actually really cares about user experience and employee impact. And you kind of get the almost osmosis of what IT really cares about. And the flip side to that, obviously, is that IT starts to care about security a lot more. They're working day-to-day with our security team, and they're really focused on ensuring that we have really consistent security controls that we trust. For our strategy, though, we have four broad pillars that we use, and these are doing the basics well to build really solid foundations, focusing on impact rather than just pure output, trying to build something where we can inspire employees internally to build better products, and also investing in trust internally and externally. And so with our solid foundations, these are just the most basic parts of our security program and our IT program. But these are always the most important. To use an example of where this is so important, we can look at something like vulnerability management. If you have blind spots in your vulnerability management program, obviously that's bad. You can't identify those vulnerabilities, but the flow and impacts of that, I think are actually more severe. This really hinders incident response. You're not sure if you know what the vulnerabilities are on a particular machine you might be investigating. Your asset inventory is less complete. You don't know if a device is missing from one of your tools or if it just isn't picked up and something is misconfigured somewhere. It hinders your ability to write really great detection rules as well because you don't have the same scope and the same quality and trust in the data that you're using and writing these rules against. I think threat detection is another good example here as well. If you don't hold a high bar of quality and really invest in building great foundations in threat detection, you end up with alert fatigue. And not only does that take time away from everything else and you start missing alerts or people kind of care less about it, but also starts to impact your attention. And you really want to make sure that your security team, who are the most valuable resources that you have, feel really great about their work and feel that they're spending their time on things that really matter. As a business, we're a pretty young company and we're also digital first. We don't have anything that's on-prem and we have a relatively consistent environment. And what that allows us to do is actually build these foundations incredibly well. We know that when we deploy some vulnerability management tooling, so if we're looking at Tenable or similar, we know how to deploy it and what it should cover. There's not really some legacy stuff that's sitting in a cupboard somewhere that someone's forgotten about. It also allows us to move a lot quicker because we're such a modern company and we're using modern technology and infrastructure. Actually deploying these tools, getting them configured, building workflows around them is a lot faster compared to dealing with multiple acquisitions and having a whole bunch of infrastructure that isn't consistent. The second pillar that we talk about is focusing on impact rather than output. I think in particular in security, it's very easy for us to fall into this trap where we go to buy a tool to solve a problem. And then we create some OKRs around it. So we want to go and buy some new endpoint detection response tool and get it deployed across 100% of devices. The problem with having a goal like that is it's focused on the output of what you're doing. 
rather than the actual impact of what you're trying to achieve. And so when we do our OKRs and we've been going through this process over the past couple of weeks, we constantly ask, why are we actually doing this? What does it actually enable? And how can we think about this problem so that we're measuring the ultimate impact of what we're trying to achieve? So why are we doing this? Why are we buying a new EDR tool? We want to get better telemetry. We want to have a sanctioned remote forensics tool available to us. But when we think about what that actually enables, the underlying goal we're trying to solve is reducing the time for investigations or incidents. And then we can start to ask more questions. How long does an IR take at the moment? And then once we have that information, we can start to form an OKR. We can start to form this goal that actually tell us whether or not we're working on the right things. And so instead of saying we want this EDR tool deployed across all of our devices, we say we want to reduce the average time that we spend on endpoint-based investigations or incidents. And now we're actually measuring a tangible, valuable outcome, the actual fact that we're reclaiming time from an operational workload. When we move on to inspiring people internally, I think it's important in InfoSec and IT to always remember that we work in domains that impact every single one of our employees every day. They log in and they're using our tools that we're providing to them. And that consciously or subconsciously sets the bar for their quality. We've dug into this a little bit, talking about how we can use our internal tooling as a reference point to try and drive the bar for quality. But I think it's also closely linked to the fourth pillar of our strategy, which is around investing in trust. So we want to inspire people to build really great tools for our customers, and we can do that by building really great tools internally. But we also need to make sure that our employees, our internal users, trust our InfoSec and our IT team so that they can convey that same sense of trust to our customers. So internally, we aim to be very transparent. Usually once a quarter, we do like a kind of off the record session with our employees and we talk about security incidents that have happened. We go into detail on them. We talk about how it's targeting typically our employees and our company. And that's a result of the fact that we're a growing company and we're being successful. We talk about the things that they can do to identify these threats themselves. And we try and reinforce that they are ultimately probably our greatest security measure. And that transparency and that information sharing helps to build really great security culture, but it also helps to build that sense of almost pride in security within the company. And that's something that really gets conveyed to our customers when we have our salespeople, when we have our devs or our solutions engineering team go and talk to our customers. So just to dig into a couple of those areas. So just firstly, one area that I think could be useful to unpack a little bit more is the impact side of things, which was the second pillar you talked about. I guess two parts to the question. Firstly, is the setting of the OKRs, is that a relatively new part of the strategy? And second to that, the way that you spoke about setting some of those OKRs and talking about impact, some of those things I think you might typically associate with setting in the business case for a technology investment initially. So I wonder, is this a different way of thinking about the business case or is this a separate issue altogether and is really evolving what you're able to achieve with that technology investment? Yeah, that's a great question. So we've had OKRs for a number of years as a business, and we try to be very data-driven about these. So we make sure that we actually have data that we can use to measure each of these OKRs. I think it's very easy to have OKRs that are less valuable because they're a lot more sentimental. But I think a good OKR is something that really digs into the impact of what you're doing and whether or not you're achieving some outcome rather than just, did we do a particular thing, right? Like, is there just some output that we generated? I think business cases are an interesting way for us to apply OKRs as well. I do think that having them focus more about the higher level objectives of the company is the right way to think about it. So digging into our IT and our InfoSec OKRs a little bit, every single item at the roadmap for both of those teams is linked directly to the OKRs that we've developed each of those teams. And each of those OKRs for our team is mapped back to something that we have as an objective for the broader company. 
And so we have that traceability and we can say one person might be working on some task today, but they can understand where that sits in our roadmap, where that sits in our OKRs and how that actually achieves the greater objective of the business. We set our OKRs annually. So at the start of each year, we do a session where we basically go around the room. We come up with a set of objectives that we feel are good to represent what we want to do as a team and the kind of key results that we think would actually measure that impact. We do a bit of refinement, discuss it back and forth, and then come away with a way of measuring whether or not we've tangibly moved the needle on security and in IT that year. The other pillar I wanted to just dig into was the trust pillar as well. Obviously, we started this conversation talking about the linkages between what internal IT does and how that translates into an external-facing exercise. It'd be useful to understand how the security culture and mindset that you're building internally is being translated across into the engineering function and the way that security and security issues are approached from a customer-facing perspective. When we think about our security awareness and education efforts internally, a lot of it is on actually explaining to our employees what the security team does and who they are. I think we really need to focus on that human element of security internally. So performing these kind of transparency exercises, talking about recent incidents, talking about how specific roles and specific people are being targeted and how these attacks actually work and demystifying them means that you have people who are a lot more educated, who are a lot less likely to go and click links and phishing emails and report them afterwards, which is great. But they also know that we invest a lot into security. They see the fact that we're putting the time, the effort, the money into improving our security controls and that it is really important to our business. And as a result, maybe you have a salesperson, they go into a call with a customer or a potential prospect. That customer might say security is really important to us. Obviously, we hold customer funds, so that's really core to our business. But our salesperson now already has that context from our business of how much time, money, effort that we put into security and they can talk a lot more credibly about the fact that security is core to our business is really important and convey that sense of trust to the customer. They're able to talk about security as a part of Airworks rather than having to give an answer like, oh, I can go and find out or yes, we have a security team and that's kind of where it ends. That kind of engagement is incredibly time consuming and it's really hard as well. A couple of years ago, we implemented a VPN that was doing TLS decryption, which obviously, if you're a more technical kind of recipient of this tool, you have some concerns about the privacy side of things. And this was being used by all of our employees. And we wanted to make sure that we weren't just rolling this tool out and saying, great, you work here, you need to use this thing now. Instead, we ran town halls in all of the different regions that our business operates in. We presented a deck that actually talked about the privacy implications of these changes. We explained what the technology was and how it worked in a simplified way so that everyone could understand it. We made sure to educate everyone, not just on what we were doing, but why we were doing it and how it actually impacted them, particularly from a privacy perspective, and what we were doing to mitigate those risks. And the goal of that is two things. We wanted to educate people on how we actually approach security problems and why this is important to the business. And the second is to humanize what we're doing. We needed them to understand that we are people, we are focused on a given mission, we're really cognizant of the impact that it has on our employees. And as a result, a lot of the people that were very apprehensive about this new tool that we were rolling out initially actually became really strong supporters of security. And you also see this through our product as well, where we have people that are identifying and fixing security issues before they become a problem in the product. You have people that contribute to our internal groups about security that are flagging breaches of other companies that are in the same kind of industry and discussing them internally. And that security culture starts to propagate not just through our salespeople to our customers, but through our product and improve the actual security of what we're building and giving to our customers. 
So in the last sort of couple of minutes, we've talked more about how strategy is translating through to execution. And just to expand on that point, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the complexities of the security environment and of operating in such a large number of international markets, navigating some of those laws and requirements for controls and compliance frameworks for the countries that Airworks has a presence in. Operating in a lot of different markets and jurisdictions, we have a lot of compliance and regulatory requirements. And that's obviously called our business. We can't operate in each of those regions without meeting those requirements. And in the majority of them, we're operating well and truly above and beyond what is required of us. The way that we approach the security aspect of compliance is that we want that to be an output of our security program. And so we want to focus on what are the threats that are targeting our business and how can we mitigate or remediate those the best? How can we make sure that vulnerabilities are patched at the right time? How can we build detection rules that are going to give us the coverage that we need to have confidence in our monitoring? And we try to make sure that compliance is met above and beyond what is actually required, but we can generate that document relatively easily for our regulators and for third parties. And so instead of focusing on compliance as the end goal, we focus on ensuring that we have the most secure infrastructure that we can. And as a result, we are exceeding all of the requirements that we have in all of these different jurisdictions. Is it mostly fairly similar between jurisdictions or are there some really big differences that you're needing to cater to? Yeah, information security has the same kind of principles everywhere in the world, I've found. There are obviously very different considerations when you implement things in different regions, but generally things will be aligned. There are differences between them. In some cases, this requires for us to modify the specific user experience in different jurisdictions. But broadly, the controls that we have are well above and beyond what is required by these regulators. And so a lot of our time is actually spent communicating the controls that we have and how they not only meet the requirement itself, but the spirit of the requirement and going above and beyond it. I think there's a real human aspect to compliance, which is making sure that your stakeholders actually understand how you're approaching security, how you're thinking about it, and providing that context to how you're actually meeting the requirements that they set and going above and beyond. And just one final question that I've asked of everyone on the podcast for the last couple of years is what excites you about the next 12 months? I think the industry is finally getting to the point where third-party vendor reviews are becoming sufficiently painful that we want to do something about it. I think that when you look at the trend over the past few years, people have started to change their vendor review process from just box checking exercise to asking more questions to try and properly evaluate the risk of the third parties they're working with. And the end result has been these like multiple hundred question questionnaires that people are shipping around all over the place. And I think when we all discuss it behind closed doors, everyone's a little bit skeptical of the approach. I'm really excited to see what happens in that space because I think it's such a time sink for our industry. It's not actually solving the core problem that we want to address, which is understanding the risk that we're taking on from third parties. I think it's ripe for disruption. I think there's a really great opportunity for someone to figure out how we can solve an incredibly manual, incredibly time-consuming process in a way that actually moves the needle on security. That was Elliot Cahoon from Airwallocks. And that's the podcast for this week. We'll be back with an exciting new interview next week. Until then, you can catch all the latest headlines in Australian IT over at itnews.com.au.